Hope you're doing well. Uh, hope you've enjoyed your meal. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. Um, uh, John is uh, John Kinzer is away from us. Been away since oh goodness, probably ten or eleven days now. He went down to Haiti and was teaching a seminary class down there uh, for the last week, and then. I think he arrived back in the States maybe this weekend and then saw some friends down in Florida where he spent some time and will be back this evening, I'm told, so we'll pray for his travels. Uh, Chip is also away. He left on vacation today and will be back this weekend sometime. So um, basically we're just doing whatever we want to around here today. Um, Nobody to tell us otherwise. (laughs) Uh, Let me read our passage uh, for today. We're continuing in the book of John. Encounters with Jesus, as I've called it. Um, Today we come to a story you're probably all very familiar with. Uh, It's this story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, He goes in, he sees uh, money-changing business commerce is going on in the temple. uh, And in one of the most passionate and energetic displays that Jesus gives during his ministry, he starts flipping tables and telling people to get out. Keep in mind... uh, the book of John does not call Jesus' acts miracles. He calls them signs because Jesus is, whatever he does, it's not just about what he's doing. It's what he's pointing us to. It's, a, it's signifying something, something very significant. And these events that we read last week and today are the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So it's, they're especially unique. Uh, they're, they're the first public displays that Jesus gives. What's he trying to tell us? What could it possibly mean that he is throwing people out of the temple? Well, those are some of the things we'll answer. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us Show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about his temple, the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you that you do have zeal for worship. Uh, Lord, you are not just concerned that we worship you. You're concerned how we worship you that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that you would be pleased not only in our public worship on Sundays, but also privately how we worship you, how we pray and how we read your word and give you thanks. Lord, we thank you for the food you have given us today. Thank you for this time of fellowship that we have had. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I have an older brother uh, named Chris. He's four years older than me. Uh, basically look at me and take off 20 pounds but add two inches and you basically have my brother. Uh, he's a tall, skinny man. Uh, and we, but we look just alike. We are often mistaken for, uh, for twins. Uh, I was 
I think Chris and I had a pretty standard uh, older brother, younger brother relationship. He picked on me and beat me up and beat me in every sport we ever played. And, uh, but I, I loved him. I wanted to be just like him and do the things that he did, watch the shows that he watched. <clears throat> one, there's lots of stories from my childhood with Chris growing up that I remember, but one really sticks out. <laughs> we were playing uh, baseball in our front yard. A lot of the of our friends from the neighborhood had come by, as they often did. We had a great big front yard, which was fun to play in. And so we're playing baseball. And unfortunately for me, the guy who lived across the street, his name was Brian, uh, who was one of my brother's friends, but me and Brian didn't get along so well. Chris, I believe, was, Chris and Brian, I believe, were 14 at the time, and I was 10. Brian picked on me incessantly, all the time. That's all he did. It was his favorite pastime. And I, that particular day, had just had enough. I didn't want to hear it anymore. I began to cry, just went inside. I just, I was fed up with how I was being treated. And as I'm about to step inside, I hear this scream, this blood-curdling scream, only to look behind me. And my older brother, Chris, has pinned Brian down on the ground, and he is one, two, beating the ever-living out of this guy. <laughs> now, I had seen Chris get upset before because he and I had had our little spats, and he'd beaten me up, but that was a lot different, right? That was kind of what was supposed to happen. This was complete rage coming out of my brother toward this kid who had been mistreating me. Now, on the one hand, I really appreciated this, right? It made me feel good that my brother would stick up for me in this way. But on the other hand, it was actually quite frightening. (laughs) I was seeing a side of my brother that I had never seen before. For the next few days, me and then my little sister, Kelly, we were treading very lightly around him. <laughs> you know, what, what's going to set the Incredible Hulk off again? You know, what, what is it? <clears throat> so we just walked. We were very careful of the things we said and did to him for the next few days. <clears throat> you imagine this is in a similar way what the disciples and the Jews are thinking about Jesus in this time. What What does this mean? Why would he act this way? He's throwing people out of the temple. He makes a whip of cords. He's driving them out. He's flipping tables. He's animals are running scared. This is very unusual. This is not typical of what Jesus does. This is, as I mentioned before, a very energetic and passionate response from Jesus. Well, the obvious question to that is, well, why? Why does he act this way? Why does this bother Jesus so much? Why does he get so angry? You imagine if someone did something like this today, what would we say to them? You know what, I think you're overreacting here. (laughs) Maybe we ought to handle this in a little bit different way. Jesus, of course, this is righteous indignation. He is totally justified in the things that he's doing. So what does he mean? There's no accident here. This is a sign. Everything that Jesus does, according to John and his gospel, is a sign pointing us to something. Last week... It was the, as one commentator put it, the, old, the water of Judaism is being replaced by the wine of the kingdom of God. The ceremonies and rituals that used to satisfy God, we don't need those anymore. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to be that final sacrifice that fulfills these things. He's replacing the old with the new, fulfilling the old with the new. And we will see both of those elements in this passage today. What is the old that Jesus is doing away with, and what is the new that is coming? So, just two points today. I'm not shortchanging you. They'll be long points. You usually get three. You only get two today. 
Number one, Jesus cares how we worship. That's one of the things that this passage is telling us. He cares not just that we worship him. You can just come however you want. You can do whatever you want. No, he cares how you do it. Our passage begins, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. As I've mentioned, Jesus is angry. He's angry because things are going on in the temple courts that weren't supposed to be going on in the temple courts. They weren't supposed to be changing money. They weren't supposed to be selling animals for sacrifice. This was okay that these things happened, but they're not supposed to be happening in the temple courts. I hope that makes sense. You have turned my father's house into a house of trade, says Jesus. He's angry. Things are going on in the place of worship that are not meant to go on in the place of worship. Worship and singing and the reading of of psalms and of scripture, that were the noises that should have been heard in the temple courts and in the temple that day. Instead, there's the bleeding of sheep, there's the clanging of money, there's the business transactions that are going on. Jesus is saying, this cannot be. I have a zeal for my father's house, and he puts it on full display. It's a little difficult to imagine what would an equivalent scenario be like today for us. We don't have money changers. We're not trying to purchase animals for sacrifice. So what, what might it look like for us to violate the same thing that's going on in this passage? These examples are intentionally silly, but I think it does in some way give us an idea. Maybe not a one-to-one comparison, but can you imagine if Chip got up in the pulpit one Sunday and said, the sermon this morning is brought to you by Nike. Just do it. You know, we put a Nike swoosh up on the pulpit, and uh, we received some advertising dollars from them, and uh, we bought some screens, and we were always showing commercials. But, hey, we were turning a profit for the church. Why not? Or if I got up and said, well, this morning this service is brought to you by Ford, built Ford Tough. You know, just we're, we're, we're turning a profit on these things. We have turned the house of worship into a house of commerce and trade. God does not care, excuse me, God doesn't just care that we worship him. He cares how we worship him. Those are intentionally silly examples. Maybe this is one that hits hits more home for us. Perhaps we don't violate this by having signs of advertisements in our sanctuary and what we do. But have you ever come to worship? Have you ever come to worship on a Sunday morning and worshiping God is the furthest thing from your mind? I know I have. You come into the house of the Lord, but your mind is nowhere near the house of the Lord. In fact, really at no point in the service did you ever really worship because you were too busy thinking about other things. You were thinking about the week that was at work, the business deal that you really hope goes through very soon, the the, the laundry list of things that you need to get done. In fact, it would really be great if you could go ahead and start them right then in the midst of the service. All you think about are things that have nothing to do with worshiping God. The fight that you had with your spouse on the way to church, you just wish that he or she would see things your way. You don't like the songs that we chose for the week, you're tired, the pastoral prayer was too long, your kids won't sit still, you're hungry, and you know your kids want pizza and you just want Chinese. And the million other things that run through your mind in worship when it ought to be focused on 
worshiping him in spirit and in truth. J.C. Ryle says that there are many who bring their bodies only into the place of worship and allow their hearts to wander to the ends of the earth. The one who brings his worldly matters with him when he professes to worship is doing that which is evidently most offensive to Christ. Maybe this is more a matter of the heart that Jesus is getting us to see rather than having silly advertisements in our worship service. I'm confessing that it happens to me too. But often, don't we? We come to worship, but we don't ourselves worship. It's something else. Our mind wanders to the ends of the earth, as J.C. Ryle says. So how do you prepare yourself for the Lord's Day? How do you? How do you prepare your heart for worship? Do you ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit that he would fill you and teach you? Perhaps rebuke you and correct you? Are you just there to check a box, to see your friends, and feel better about yourself? Or do you come into worship ready, active to worship him? What can I do? What am I bringing? How have I prepared myself? Or have you stayed up till 2 a.m. again on Saturday night and you're just too tired to pay any attention on what happens Sunday morning? Remember, we have come to worship Jesus. This very Jesus who a few weeks ago we said is God, that he's creator, he's sustainer, he's redeemer. We're not coming to worship just another person, just another great teacher who has some really interesting ideas that we need to learn more about. We're coming to worship God who became like us and for us. John Piper says on preparing our hearts from worship, we make two mistakes, he says. Some of us come to worship and we prepare as spectators. We come just to watch, as if we're coming to watch a sporting event. And really what we anticipate is someone entertain me, someone move me, someone show me something amazing. And we can have the same attitude as we come into Sunday morning worship. We just assume our needs are going to be met. We hope the music's good. We hope our kids don't get upset. We hope people seek us out and invite us to lunch. As for Jesus, well, maybe he'll show up and maybe he won't. We come as spectators hoping to be served. Secondly, John Piper says, some of us, we prepare for Sunday morning as workers. I would fall into this category as a vocational pastor, but it's certainly not limited to vocational pastors. We prepare for worship much like we prepare for work. I'm going to work again. I have a responsibility while I'm there. It's, it's just another thing that I do. <clears throat> preparing to meet, preparing to go to church is just, we want to assess ourselves. How well, how well did I teach the lesson? How well did I meet people? How well did I greet them and care for them? What we should do, says John Piper, is two things. One, prepare to receive. Every time we gather as a church, God's word will be preached. How are you preparing yourself to receive that word? A good word, quite literally, from the Lord. To see God for who he is. To be overwhelmed again for his greatness and his goodness. <clears throat> to come boldly, but come ready to receive. We also prepare ourselves to respond. When God reveals, we respond. He's revealing something to us about himself through whatever we're singing, through whatever we're reading, through whatever we're hearing preached. How are you responding to that? Or is it just like you're in a classroom at a school, you're just receiving information, you're letting it pass through one ear throughout, or, and out the other? Are you responding to that? And actually, there's three. I said there was two, there's three. 
Lastly, prepare to edify others. Are you just there for yourself, how I might be encouraged and lifted up? Are you there? God's going to use me today. He's going to use me in the life of someone. How can I pray for you, brother or sister? How can I prepare myself to edify and to encourage other people? So God first is very concerned with how we worship him. And specifically what we've said is, are we preparing ourselves to enter into that worship? Secondly, Jesus cares who we worship. might seem obvious, but it seems to be where he's going next in this passage. So the Jews respond to Jesus' outrage against what he was doing in the temple by saying, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what authority do you have to come in here and start flipping the tables? You know, who are you, dude, that you're coming in here and acting this way? They're, they're questioning Jesus' Jesus's authority. What right do you have to do this? Jesus gives a very puzzling response. Uh, it's not puzzling to us. We know the rest of the story, but it had to have been puzzling to them at the time. What authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Like, did, Jesus, did you misunderstand what we were asking for? No, he didn't misunderstand it at all. Jesus is predicting his death, but he's also predicting his resurrection. He's saying, you want the authority? You want to know why I have the authority to do this? You want to know who I am? Destroy me, and in three days I will raise from the dead, and it will validate everything that I have said and do. See, later the disciples will remember Jesus saying this, and it clicked. After he rose from the dead, they remembered Jesus saying this about himself being the temple, and it all made sense to them. Oh, you may not believe it now. You may not think I have any authority now. Kill me, and I'll raise from the dead, and it will prove to you that I have the authority by which I'm declaring I have now. So the sign that Jesus is pointing to is he's come to die, and he's come to rise from the dead. And he's also declaring something to us about the temple. Let's start with the second one first. Just like the ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals that were fulfilled in the story of uh, Jesus turning water into wine, if you remember that, they had these stone jars which were uh, for washings and for purification. Anytime you sat down for a meal, you had to cleanse yourself, because not because your hands were dirty, though they probably were, you were ritually unclean, unclean. So you had to be ritually cleansed. Jesus is saying, enough of that. We don't have to do that anymore. I am, I am fulfilling that with my blood. If you're cleansed of my blood, you are now no longer ritually unclean. I've cleansed you. Jesus is also telling us something about the temple. He's cleaning it out, quite literally and figuratively. There's no need for the temple anymore. There's no need for this place to come where God's presence is. God's presence is everywhere now. The veil is going to be torn, and Jesus is saying, this too is being fulfilled I am the temple. I'm cleansing you with my blood. I now dwell within you and not in some temple that's been erected. Jesus truly has come to turn things upside down. How many times in this book we're going to see, and and most certainly in our next passage, uh, John chapter 3, which I actually won't be preaching here. I'll be preaching from John 3 this Sunday. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he tells him that he must be born again, Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? born again. Nicodemus didn't have, even have a category for what Jesus was saying. He was, he was missing the spiritual meaning behind the physical vocabulary. Jesus is turning everything upside down. He's saying, 
this old way. And it wasn't the right way. It was a way that you misunderstood. But this old way of doing things, of religion, it's gone. Stop. Don't trust in sacrifices and rituals and all this other mess. You've lifted it up to the level of my commands. And if, if you continue to do these things, as if you think I'm going to love you more and accept you more. Does that sound familiar? Sometimes in your own heart. You think if you continue on, if you don't miss church for three years, if you don't do all these other things, and God loves me based on those things, that's not why he loves you. Jesus is telling the Jews, you're not acceptable because you, you haven't missed Passover <laughs> your whole life or that you, you continually cleanse your hands. No, that's the road to hell. You're missing it. I am the person you need to be trusting in. I am the one who cleanses you. Believe in me. Have faith in me and trust in me. In whom do you trust? It's a little ironic that in God we trust is still on our currency in this nation because that doesn't seem to be very fitting. Uh, but that's a, maybe that's another sermon for another time. What would be said of you? In whom do you trust? What would your wife or husband say? What would your friends say? What would your prayer life say? What would any number of things say? The, the list could go on. How do you love your neighbor? How, what would that say? How do you respond to a crisis? What would those things say about in whom do you trust? <clears throat> Clearly this person trusts in God and their hope is in Christ. I imagine for most of us that's indicative of some of the time. We do trust him and love him. But other times it would say, well, maybe he believes in God, but his trust most certainly is not in God. His trust is in himself. It's the story of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The, ta- the, uh, the Pharisee is standing there, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like this tax collector. I give, I tithe what I get, I fast twice a week. Thank you so much. Is he thanking God? He's thanking himself. Is he giving glory to God? No, he's giving glory to himself. Thank you, because I do these things, I'm acceptable. And then you have the tax collector who's standing off by himself. He can't even look up to God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He said, I don't have anything. I've got nothing for this transaction here. I need mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't have good works. I don't have anything that I can barter with you, God. I just need you to be merciful on me because I'm a wretched sinner, and that's all that I can appeal to. Jesus is showing the Jews they need to stop making so much of this religious system that they have and start worshiping him. We do the same thing. We trust in our religious accomplishments more than Christ. We have faith in ourselves more than Christ. Simply put, We want to worship ourselves and not Christ. But Christ cares who we worship, and it's got to be him to be true worship. (coughs) My wife, Lauren, absolutely hates surprises. It's not that I can't surprise her, it's that she doesn't want me to surprise her. She just doesn't like them. uh, The most frustrating thing is she'll buy a new book, maybe a novel or something that she's wanted to read for a long time, and she'll read the last ten pages first. How frustrating is that? Because she doesn't 
She does not want to be surprised at what happens. She wants to know what's going to happen, and then she'll go back to the first and read the book. And she, I, I know how, know how this plays out, right? If you're not like that, isn't that really infuriating? Yeah. I just made, it makes no sense to me. I want to be surprised. I, I don't want to know what's going to happen all the way through the book. Jesus comes, and the very first thing that he does is to attend a marriage feast and to cleanse the temple. Cleanse the temple from the awful things that are going on there. When Christ comes again, the first thing that he's going to do is to purify the whole visible church and to hold a marriage supper. But all those that are his are going to be invited to. We know what the end is. We know it is. We're celebrating with him. He's taking us to be with him. Exactly what's going to happen in between time, we don't know what's going to happen, but the end is certain. It's for sure. He's come and he's cleansed. Do you know him and do you love him? Your worship. I, I exhort you again to prepare yourself for worship. Because he does care about what your heart is like as you do so. Jesus, lastly, is also telling us something about our hearts. In order to believe in him and love and trust in him, especially as he's going to illustrate in this next passage in John 3, he's got to come into your heart and he's got to wreck the place. He's got to take the idols and he's got to throw them out. He's got to take the sin and he's got to run it out of there. He's got to remove the heart of stone and he's got to give you a heart of flesh. Has he done that for you? Has he given you this this new heart where you love him? Not perfectly. Of course, you still struggle with certain things. You struggle maybe, if you're like me, thinking, well, you know what? I'm not so bad. I really kind of have it together. That that lie that creeps in that Satan wants you to believe about yourself. On the side of my refrigerator growing up, there was a dry erase board. And every day when I came downstairs for breakfast... There was my chore list on the side of the refrigerator. Seven chores every day, and they didn't normally change. Sometimes they would, but right there as I stepped into the kitchen, staring me in the face was the chore list. Now, on the one hand, I hated this chore list because nobody wants to do chores. Nobody likes that. But on the other hand, I didn't mind it because it was do these things and mom and dad will be happy with you. Right? Do these things, you won't get in trouble, you won't get grounded, you'll get your allowance, you'll, you'll still get to watch the TV show that you want to before you go to bed. For many of us, we, if we're honest, we kind of would like Christianity to, to remain that way. God, just give me the list of things that if I do these things, you'll stay happy with me and everything will be okay. If I do these things, everything will be fine. And Jesus says, I am wrecking this idea because this is what the Jews thought Christianity was all about. They thought serving God was just about the list of things and everything will be okay and we can stay in right standing. Jesus is blowing all this up. It is not about this. He's showing them that they are worse than they thought, but more importantly, worshiping God is in spirit and in truth and not through rituals. Let me close with this quote by R.C. Sproul. Jesus is the final and full expression of what was only a shadow in the Old Testament. Here he indicates that God is present in him. The temple in Jerusalem could be destroyed, but not the temple that Jesus would rebuild in three days. His own body that was to be raised from the dead. John's record of the temple cleansing immediately after the miracle at Cana offers an important key to the whole of Jesus' ministry. And these events are signaled replacement of the old order 
with the new. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. You most certainly had much grace and mercy for those in the Old Testament. But Lord, it clear, clearly you needed to remind those believers, remind your followers in the New Testament of the grace and mercy that you offer through Jesus. They, like us, we get these things backwards. It's in our, clearly it is in our sinful human hearts to want to earn it, to want to trust in ourselves. But Lord, what a freeing thought to say it's by grace I have been saved and nothing of my own. Lord, would you not just let that be an idea that we know, but that would be lived out in our life. It would truly change us. It would change the way we worship, change the way we live, change the way we relate to one another. Lord, thank you so much for coming down and and wrecking our hearts, taking the sin out, giving us a new heart that loves you and longs for you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.